again everyone and welcome to another baseball season as we're set to begin with another season of the Ohio Baseball Weekly Show. Glad to have you along. I am Dave Mitchell and for the third season we're going to be talking about the Cleveland Indians and the Cincinnati Reds and alongside once again for another year is uh, my sidekick, my co-host and the resident Reds expert Mark Donahue. Mark, glad to have you along again. Happy new baseball year, David. It's good to be back, and I think uh, this is a year that both of us, I think, may have something to root for, and uh, I, I think we ought to state it clearly going in here that uh, this is one of those rare years where both of our teams have a chance to go all the way. Boy, I, I think so. I think it's going to be outstanding. This is one of those seasons. I, You know, i got to tell you, um, i got to – I don't know what we're going to do this year, Mark. Uh, I really don't have anything to complain about as far as uh, the Cleveland Indians front office is concerned this year. I know you're going to fall off your chair when I tell you that, but, hey, uh, it's something that I don't know what we're going to do. Well, all I can say, Dave, it's early, and you have plenty of time to gain some momentum and, and ratchet up the the old Dave we know and love. But, honestly, I, I think what the, the Indians front office did this year uh, it has to make even the, the most uh, ardent critics of the organization uh, stand up and take notice. I mean, <clears throat> sometimes what the front office does, even when they're good moves, they don't pay off. These players don't perform. There's injuries or other mitigating situations that arise. But in this case, you can't fault the front office for not putting a competitive team on the field. I mean, this team... In all honesty, it probably won't win the division, but this team outside of Detroit, I think, is as strong as any team in the division. And if Detroit runs into some injuries or whatever, you don't want that to happen. But if it did, I think the Indians are going to be a team that that, that should win between 85 and 88 games this year, and that's not going to win the division every year. But it puts you in a position, and and I, I noticed this in the last three or four years of the Reds, it puts the fans in a position to have fun during the baseball season, where games in September mean something, where you look forward to a, a big series because your team is competitive. Maybe they're not in first place, but they're two games out, or they're three games out, or uh, you know they're they're on a on a road trip that if they make it in September, they're going to be in contention till the end. Those are the kind of things that make baseball fun. If your team is out of it in July and you're 16 games out, there's no fun in baseball <laughs> the last two or three months. And that's the way the Reds were for a long time. But as they got better and better and better, those games that they began to win in the, the later stages of the year became so much fun. And look, you, you remember why you like baseball when your team's in it. And I think the Indians are going to be in it for the rest of the year. No, I tend to agree with you, Mark. And, and the one thing I, I do want to bring up is we do have a guest to start off uh, this opening night, I, I should say, and that's going to be Adam Green. Adam is from uh, ArizonaSports.com, 
And they did an excellent article this year. Of course, one of the big things that happened between the Indians and the Reds was that three-team deal between the Indians, Reds, and Arizona. And the Indians got Trevor Bauer. And Trevor Bauer came to the Indians with uh, a rather checkered past as far as uh, uh, his career, short career, with the Arizona Diamondbacks. And Miguel Montero, the catcher for the Arizona Diamondbacks, had some scathing things to say about uh, Bauer. And we're going to talk to Adam Green because it was on his blog site that that was put on. And I want to talk to him uh, about that. So he's going to be our guest. That's going to be coming up about 930. We're going to have a two-hour show tonight or pretty close to it. We're going to be able to talk to you about the Indians and the Reds. But I want to go into the winter activities for the two ball clubs, Mark, to start off tonight's show. And of course, I guess we can't get any farther than let's start off with that trade between the Indians, the Reds, and Arizona, where uh, the Reds tried to solidify their leadoff hitter position by picking up Shinsu Chu from the Indians. He is a right fielder. He has always been a right fielder. He's only played a handful of games in center field, but the Reds are going to try to put him in center. So it appears like they're going to uh, sacrifice some defense to try to solidify the top of their lineup. Is that correct? That's exactly correct, and I, <clears throat> I'm, I wasn't until the last two or three years a big uh, proponent of the cybermetrics uh, in baseball, but it, 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 I've, I've seen statistics as it relates to Drew Stubbs and his war uh, on offense and defense, and uh, if Chu lives up to his, the back of his baseball card, the Reds are going to have a potent offense. I mean, they are really going to have a much, much better offense because in Cincinnati, not only with getting rid of Stubbs, but getting rid of Wilson Valdez, they got rid of about 650 at-bats where the combined batting average was 182, and the on-base percentage was something in in the high twos. Uh, I mean, that's hard to believe when you had that many at-bats, but the Reds had a terrible bench, they had a huge hole in center field offensively. Now, granted, Drew Stubbs is a superior center fielder, and you guys in Cleveland uh, are in for a treat because this guy can run he can run him down. And he doesn't always take great routes to the ball, uh, but his speed is such that he overcomes some glaring weaknesses. But uh, I, I'm anxious to see what you think about Chu and his uh, – you've seen him play, what, three, four years – what do you think he can bring to the Reds in terms of what they need, which is an on-base machine, and even if he's only going to give you mediocre defense in the outfield? Well, you know, Chu is probably – he. well, he was, he was the best leadoff man that the Indians had, bar none. Um, he is an excellent leadoff guy. He does an excellent job of working the pitcher. Uh, he's got speed at the top of the order. Now, does he have Drew Stubbs speed? Absolutely not. But he's going to be able to steal some bases for the Reds. Now, as far as center field, he's got a, he's got an excellent arm. Uh, where he may have some problems, Mark, is chasing down some balls in the gaps. Uh, he's not going to remind anyone of Cesar Geronimo or Ken Griffey Jr. by far. But he's going to be adequate to decent out in center field, and I think that's what the Reds need because they really, I think that was the problem last year. They had no leadoff man. They had to fluctuate between Brandon Phillips up there and Drew Stubbs, and they really needed somebody at the top of that lineup to take over. Yeah, the offensively, I mean, you look at the Reds lineup when you have two starting things off. I mean, that's that's a very, very formidable lineup. 
and uh, you know I hope they can they can continue their team growth offensively. And and don't forget, you know uh, Ryan Ludwig last year, the first half of the season he was awful, uh, and they still scored a lot of runs. They, they had I think they're at the middle of the pack in terms of runs scored. This team can put up a lot of runs, and with with Chew at the top, you have Brandon Phillips hitting second, a healthy Joey Votto hitting third. Ludwig, then Bruce, and then you have Frazier. I mean, that, that, that's a pretty tough lineup. And uh, so I hope that they can maintain their health. But as it relates to defense, I, I read just, I think it was yesterday, that Dusty Baker has already, you know, talked about the idea that after the seventh inning, you know, you move Chu to left field and you put Heisey in center field. Heisey, he wasn't quite as good as Stubbs. He's good. I mean, he's, he's very fast, covers a lot of turf. So, you know, you're going to have five or six innings a game where you have maybe a, a less than desirable center fielder. But on average, a center fielder gets three to four putouts a game. Can they be important? Sure. But even if he doesn't have the metrics that Drew Stubbs has, I think he more than compensates it with his, with his offense. Yeah, I I would uh, definitely agree. And when you put Brandon Phillips behind him in that lineup and then Joey Votto, I think you've got a very, very potent lineup for the Reds coming up this year to try to defend that Central Division crown. But I guess the one question that I have to ask is they gave up uh, a key part of their future in D.D. Gregorius. Uh, what did you think about giving him up? I didn't want to give him up uh, because, frankly, what I would have done is put Gregorius at short and moved Zach Kozart to third base. Yeah, I think he would have. He's got enough. Power. He had 15 home runs last year as a rookie, and he, he and he was injured. He missed probably 20, 30, maybe even 40 games. So I mean, I think this guy could hit 25 home runs. Uh, I put him at third base. He's going to fill out. I mean, he would be a fantastic third baseman, and I would have put uh, Gregorius at short. Uh, but you, you know, you the Reds. I, I think correctly so. They have a chance to win this year, not just win the division. I mean, this team, with their pitching, they can go all the way. I mean, they can—they should have won the World Series this year or last year. Uh, they were better than the Giants. They had the Giants down two to nothing. I don't want to get back into those bad memories, but they—they, they, I thought they were the best team in the playoffs, and uh, I think they're clearly better team than the Giants. And so they—they they got better over being the better team last year. They got even better this year. So I, I, I applaud them. As we said earlier, uh, the the front office, when they see an opportunity to win uh, and they go for it, I can't fault them. Would I like to have Gregorius? Yeah, I would. <laughs> I think down the road he's going to be a, a fine player. But, uh, you know, as you well know, there's only so many years where a major league team legitimately <laughs> has a chance to win the World Series, and this is one of those years for the Reds. Well, Chu's in Cincinnati. Gregorius is in Arizona. Drew Stubbs, who was almost the bane of your existence last year as a Ritz fan, is now in Cleveland. So I'm going to reverse the uh, the polarity here and ask you the same question. What should we expect from Drew Stubbs in Cleveland? Uh, he'll hit probably 220, 225. He'll probably hit anywhere from 15 to 18 home runs. He'll steal you 30 to 35 bases. He'll play great defense, and he'll strike out about 220 times. Now, if and you that if, is not good. 
Well, it's not good if you expect more. But if you hit him eighth or ninth, uh, then you get what you pay for. I mean, I, a lot of lineups can afford to have a Drew Stubbs in it. Now, last year the Reds could afford it because they had uh, you know, a pretty potent offense without him. If you were a team that didn't have a great offense and you have uh, Stubbs in center field, he, he's, he'll kill you. <laughs> but the Indians, uh, you know, I think their offense, if they win, it's not going to be because of their offense this year. It's probably because of their defense and pitching. So they, they've got uh, some very good starting pitching. They've got a, uh, you know, a good bullpen if everybody's healthy. <clears throat> uh, but uh, he's, he, there'll be a time this year where we're going to have a show on this, and you're going to say, why did he strike out four times? And why did he take three, three strike threes? Because that is what was infuriating to me. You'll see him take a lot of called third strikes. And with a guy with his speed, you, you ask yourself, just hit a ground ball to short. That's all you have to do. Don't hit a home run. Hit a ground ball to short, and you'll beat, you'll beat him out half the time. So that's the frustrating part. But I like Drew Stubbs. I, you know, I think uh, you know, maybe there will be a, a hitting coach that will find the magic. But what I've heard about him, he's very hard-headed. You know, he, doesn't, he doesn't want to be what he calls a Judy hitter he wants to hit 30 40 home runs a year power is a big part of his game by his own admission but uh, he will drive you nuts with the strikeouts well okay i think someone needs to um contact homeland security because obviously some aliens russians iranians or whatever have inhabited the bodies of the dolans and opened up the checkbook because this past off season was probably the richest one for any major league baseball player uh, to inhabit a Cleveland Indians uniform in the history of the franchise. First of all, Nick Swisher. Swisher signed a, a five-year deal for $14 million a year. And then to everyone's surprise, uh, including myself, uh, they go on to get Michael Bourne, a player that you wanted last year for the Reds, and I don't blame you. He's one of the premier center fielders in baseball. Uh First of all, I, I think it was an extreme surprise that the Indians did what they did, uh, and and it actually made a lot of sense for what they did. We talked last year, Mark, when they hired Terry Francona as the manager, and one of my biggest hopes was that everything would move up, that Francona would be able to loosen the purse strings, and I was afraid that maybe with Francona being the new manager and the money that they paid for him, they would just shut, shut everything down and they wouldn't... Uh, sign anybody else, but it's evident that Francona's been able to uh, pull some strings, so to speak, with the Indians' management and bring in some top-flight ball players. What do you think? Well, I think we've talked during the offseason about this. I mean, I think the, the moves made by the Indians were, were outstanding moves this year. Uh, I particularly like the Bourne uh, signing. I think he is going to have a more a potent impact on your offense than than Swisher. My only caution about Swisher is looking at this guy's statistics. Is he worth fourteen million dollars a year? I mean, I, no. I would see I would see him at eight to nine million for four or five years, but fourteen million a year for his baseball card. Uh, I, I didn't understand that. I thought my personal opinion is he's a, he's a good get. 
but I thought they overpaid substantially for him. And, you know, what happened to Michael Bourne, I think, would have happened to Swisher. They, they signed Swisher early on. Uh, Bourne, his value went down precipitously from the, from the end of the last season until he was signed last month. And I think the same thing would have happened to Swisher. I think they could have got him at a lot, you know, a lesser rate. And, and candidly, for $14 million, I think they could have gotten, you know, some other talent out there, maybe some younger talent uh, than, than him. I, I, I mean, I think he's a nice, a nice player, but $14 million a year, uh, I'm not so sure. Mark, I agree with you that Swisher is not worth $14 million a year. But, and I've been hit up about this during the winter months also, uh, the way I justify the Swisher signing is this way. It's only $2 million more a year than they were paying for Travis Hafner. And you're getting three times the production. Basically what this turned out to be was Nick Swisher to Cleveland, Travis Hafner to the Yankees, and I think the Indians would have made that trade even up any day of the week and twice on Sunday. Well, probably so. Um, but, you know, Travis Hafner at one time, if you remember, what, five years ago? I mean, this was a guy projected to hit 45, 50 home runs. And maybe he would have without the injuries. But uh, I, I just don't see that kind of upside for Swisher I mean, I, I I didn't see him playing New York. Maybe there's some aspects of his game I don't understand or see. But who would you rather have for those dollars, Chu or Swisher? Swisher. Why? Uh, because Well, especially with this team, because it gives us a lot more flexibility, and that brings me back to Drew Stubbs, and I'll tell you why. Right now it gives the Indians an outfield of Stubbs and right, born in center, Brantley and left. They can move Swisher to first base and move Reynolds from first base to the DH position, and it solidifies the outfield. So, yeah, I would rather have Swisher right now than Chu, only because Swisher's able to play first base and we can put Reynolds at the DH position where the Indians are sorely lacking. But here's my other question to you as far as Drew Stubbs. If Stubbs is unable to hit, now today he had a pretty good day against the Cubs, but you're right, going into today, he was batting 143 in spring and 14 at-bats, only two hits and five strikeouts. Today he did not strike out, and he had two hits and four at-bats, including a double and a run scored. But in this situation, Stubbs is going to get a a fire lit underneath him because of the fact that if he doesn't hit in spring training, they can always move Swisher back to right field and play Reynolds at first base, and Stubbs all of a sudden becomes the fourth outfielder. Do do you think that's the case? Does Stubbs need some sort of uh, incentive to play? I I don't think it's necessarily a mental thing with him. Uh, I've looked at his swing for five years, and there are so many holes in that swing. Uh, you'll see this. He, 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 you know, he's about six five. He's very long and lanky, uh, and he, he gets tied up inside. Uh, he can't reach the outside, and, and he and he tries to pull everything. I don't think it's in his head necessarily that he needs a fire lit under him. I think he's a pretty competitive kid, but it's a what I'll call a structural problem with his swing. He he cannot yank the. He seldom pulls the ball, especially with any power. Because he can't, he can't reach the inside fastball. They jam him inside, 
and that's where he takes a lot of pitches. He'll he'll get fooled on the inside fastball a lot because he's looking outside, and he he, he has such a long loopy swing that he he doesn't have that kind of chopping power. If you look at look look at Jay Bruce as an example, Jay Bruce is so short to the ball, and and, and Joey Votto, Joey Votto, <laughs> it looks like his swing starts about four inches behind the plate and stops about two inches in front of the plate. I mean, just a, like a tomahawk chop on the thing and creates tremendous bat speed and power. Stubbs had this huge loopy swing that is, and he's so easily fooled by breaking balls and off-speed pitches. So in answer to your question, I don't think it's something, gee, Drew, you better, you better shape up or we're going to make you the fourth outfielder. Believe me, he's smart enough to understand the position he's in. Unless he would change his approach at the plate, it's not going to work. I don't think he can fix it unless he goes up there, he, he takes a shorter swing, he chokes up a little bit on the bat, and tries to, to you know, cover the bat and make contact. What he will do in many cases, it, because he's afraid to strike out, you'll see this happen during the year, he'll go up there and swing at the first pitch because he doesn't want to strike out. And it cuts down on his strikeouts, but he's he's feeling for the ball. He just tries to, you know, get the bat on the ball sometimes. And the pitchers know that. So what do they do? They don't throw strikes. And he'll chase stuff. So it's it's a vicious circle that he's in. And Red's batting coaches, all of them, and Dusty Baker's a pretty good hitting coach, they have tried to work with him, and it hasn't worked. So I'll be anxious to see what the Indians try to do with him, but it's not in his head, and maybe you just lay the law down to him that you, you choke up, you go to a smaller bat, you make contact, or you sit. Well, that, that, that's kind of what I was getting at, Mark. I mean, you, you've said over the last two years that he's got to change his stroke, and he has been unable or unwilling to change that stroke. But now coming to the Indians where, first of all, it's – a, a blow to your ego, I would think, to be traded away from a Central Division champion in the National League to the fourth-place finisher in the Central Division in the American League and going from Cincinnati to Cleveland, even though he was expected to be the starting center fielder. Now the Indians go out and they get Michael Bourne. That's got to be a blow to his ego. Something's got to wake this kid up to say, hey, you've got to make some changes, and if it doesn't happen, this is what's going to happen to you. You're going to sit. Well, I think it's more to the point. When you hit, what did he hit, 211 last year, 212, um, it's no longer a matter of sitting. If you're going to hit 190 or 200 in the big leagues, you're not going to be in the big leagues. I mean, that, that's what he faces. And you, you would think that somebody would have gotten to him and, you know, explained the facts of life. But he, from what I heard, and I've never met him, uh, that he was, he was very arrogant and he, he refused to take advice. Uh, he made some comment in the paper a couple of years ago. He said, my game is power, and I don't care if I strike out 200 times. I'm here to drive in runs and hit home runs. <laughs> well, no, you're not. <laughs> you're here to do what the manager tells you to do. And he was a leadoff hitter for the Reds. You, you know, you, you, you want to get on base. And he refused to change his approach, and that's why he had an on-base percentage that, by the way, uh, there was an article I read earlier this week, or la- late last week, 
where he had the he was the worst hitter in baseball last year statistically. If you if you add everything up, the worst hitter of all the baseball players in the major leagues, he was the worst. They combined on base percentage and strikeouts and balls in play, batting average on base percentage, all these statistics. If that doesn't wake somebody up, Dave, I, I don't know what, how a manager or a coach can get in your head more than that. Well, okay, hitting aside, can he play right field? If you can play center field, you can play any position. Very simply, I mean, that, that's will he play right field? Well, he'll have no choice if that's where they put him. Yeah, he, physically, can he play it? Sure, he can. Uh, he, he doesn't have a, a tremendous arm. He's got a very strong arm. He's got an arm good enough for right field. And you know, it's interesting. It's it's like the Peter principle. They seem to put these p- players in positions where they are that they can play, rather than putting a player, imagine Drew Stubbs in left field. He would be one of the greatest left fielders in the history of baseball with his speed and his arm and his coverage and all this stuff. But they put him in center or right where he's he's somewhat marginal. Imagine Chu in left field. I mean, he's a, he's a very yeah, good... Yeah, would be an right, excellent left fielder. I mean, he'd be a terrific left fielder. I, I think about Barry Bonds. You know, Barry Bonds came up as a right fielder at one time, and he actually played center field. They put him in left field, and he was the best left fielder maybe in baseball history because he had all the all the stuff you need to play the outfield. But in many cases, I think these guys are miscast. And, you know, I think about Drew Stubbs and all the talent this guy has, and I wonder why somebody, seeing the holes in his swing, when he was at the University of Texas, he struck out a lot for a college kid. Why not make him a switch hitter when he was a kid? Imagine the power he would have had. He wouldn't have had to face that breaking ball that, that chews him up. And what a great, you know, I, I've gone through the switch inning thing, and it, it, it really, really, I enjoyed it a great deal. I was able to do it. But it, it changes your approach at the plate. And I, a guy with real talent like him, what he could have done at an early age if you learned to switch hit. I think that's something that, that most players don't understand the impact that would have on your game if you're able to switch hit. That's why the, the Reds, you know, made Billy Hamilton switch hit because they realize if, if he can just get on base, he's, he's going to be a great asset to the team. But uh, Drew Stubbs is, is an enigma, and if you guys find the combination, you're going to have a great player. But so far, uh, that combination has been elusive. Well, we've covered a lot of uh... – information so far on the Indians and the Reds. Uh, I I realize we've spent a lot of time talking about the Indians. We're going to catch up with the Reds on the other half of our interview with Adam Green, which is coming up. But, you know, Mark, one of the guys that the Indians acquired from Arizona in this three-way trade was Trevor Bauer. And you and I discussed him during the the winter months. Um, He just simply uh, had problems with the owner out in Arizona. He just was not a good fit out there, uh, mainly due to his warm-ups and his attitude. Uh, you told me a little bit about him during the during the winter months. That you you saw him pitch one time, and and he's got a heck of an arm, but maybe a ten cent head. I saw him pitch twice, actually. I saw him in Arizona pitch once, and I saw him here in Cincinnati. And I tell you, you got a great arm. <laughs> you really do. This kid, he can throw, 
And now the, the question is, can he pitch? But he's got the tools. And it's very interesting. I'll be interested to see what our, our guest thinks because last year in the paper they were talking about this kid because he came in against the Reds and he was throwing 98, 97 miles an hour, but he walked three guys and gave up a big hit and, you know, the, the game got out of hand. But I don't know if it was Marty Brenneman or one of the announcers made a comparison of Trevor Bauer to Homer Bailey when Homer Bailey first came up. Homer Bailey was a real pain in the butt. I mean, he was not a very popular guy on the team, very, very uh, hard to manage, hard to control. And he almost pitched his way off that team, not because of his pitching necessarily, but because of his attitude. You couldn't tell him anything. Uh, he was just – and they actually compared him to Trevor Bauer. Now, Bauer, I think, is what, 21 years old or 22? He's pretty young. Mm-hmm. And, you know, he's got a yeah. lot to grow. He's, he's got a, he will grow up. So can you harness that arm? Yeah. And it's not so much when the manager or general manager is upset with you. If your teammates turn on you, it's over. So I, I'd be interested to hear what our guest says about what the other players in the clubhouse felt about him. Because if they... Well, if that's they what we're going to find that... That's what we're going to find out right now. Uh, our guest right now is Adam Green from ArizonaSports.com. Adam is uh, the web content editor for ArizonaSports.com, and we want to invite into our Ohio Baseball Weekly microphones Adam Green. Adam, can you hear me okay? I can. Thanks for having me, guys. Hi, Adam. Okay, great. Welcome. Boy, I'm glad we can get we can get you on. Adam, I'm Dave Mitchell, and Mark Donahue is alongside, and of course, we've been talking uh, mainly for the first half hour of the show tonight, Adam, uh, on that big Indians, Reds, and Arizona Diamondbacks trade um, back at the end of December. And it uh, really caught us by surprise that not only uh, were the Indians uh, able to acquire uh, Drew Stubbs and D.D. Gregorius, but then turn around and trade Gregorius to the Diamondbacks for uh, Trevor Bauer. And I want to get into the article here in a little bit, but tell us uh, basically what you have uh, seen over the last couple of years of Trevor Bauer and what Indian fans can expect out of him. Well, the funny thing with Bauer, he was taken third overall in 2011, and from that point on, he was one of the top prospects in the organization. He was minor league player of the year, the pitcher of the year last year for them, his time with AAA especially. He was skyrocketing through the system, and it was just a matter of time before he came up to the major leagues and succeeded, and he finally got that chance last year, and he was definitely uneven in his few starts. His first one, he only lasted a few innings, had struck out a few guys, but also had issues with his control, then he finally did get a win a couple starts later, but for the most part, he never really gained any traction with the big league club in Arizona, and they sent him back down, and that was the last we'd see of him, so for what we know with him from what we could see is that he's definitely, he's mercurial in that he has his own ways of doing things, what he thinks is best for him as far as how to go about warming up and how to go about pitching the hitters. And he didn't really take too kindly to the Diamondbacks. He said, we want you to do it this way. And they didn't take too kindly to him saying, no, I'm going to do it my way. So it ended up being a bad fit from the get-go, which kind of makes you wonder, why would you take a guy third overall and then basically less than two years later decide, we don't like your personality. But he's got a lot of good stuff, really good stuff. But if you can, like, you guys say, like, you can harness it, then you guys, I guess, have a pretty good pitcher in Cleveland. Hey, Adam, this is Mark well, Donahue. Uh, uh, th thanks for joining us, number one. Uh, I saw Trevor pitch twice this year, or last year, 
and uh, he's he's got the fastball. He had a late breaking slider. Uh, to me, it appeared that he was overthrowing the ball, which is not unusual for young pitchers. But from a physical perspective, it looked like he has all the tools. He does, and it's kind of tough because he had a groin injury too that he was dealing with last year that he kind of suffered in his first start against Atlanta with the Diamondbacks, and he was kind of pitching with that, pitching around that, and you could say that may have affected his delivery, it may have affected his control, but it looked like he was trying to strike guys out. It wasn't necessarily pitching the contact, and people aren't going to swing the bat. These are major league hitters who aren't going to chase everything out of the zone. You're going to have to throw strikes, and I think it's a situation where the Diamondbacks, I'll be honest, I think they gave up on him too soon. I think there's way too much potential there for them to just give up on like that, but at the same time, there's no guarantees he reaches that. And if his mentality improves just a little bit, where he listens to a little bit of advice from his catchers, from his managers, from players who have done this before, and he could be a really good pitcher. Because, yeah, he's got so many pitches. There's some that we don't even have names for. He just throws, like, the backwards sliders and things like that. He's got excellent stuff. And if he can harness it, he's got potential to be really, really good. I agree. Adam Green, I our thought... guest from ArizonaSports.com. Adam, who was the person that wrote the article that I saw back at, uh, at the end of January? Uh, that was me. <laughs> that well, okay, that was you. Okay, that's that's mm-hmm. what I thought. Um, all right, now Miguel Montero, the the Diamondbacks catcher. I've I've got what he said in case uh, nobody heard it, and I want to give people an opportunity to to listen to what Miguel Montero said about Trevor Bauer and the things that he had to go through simply uh, just warming him up during spring training last year. Right now, uh, Montero talks about just how much uh, Bauer uh, was hard-headed and basically drove Montero up a wall. Since they won in a spring training, I caught him, and he killed me because he threw about 100 pitchers the first day. And I'm like, man, he's the first bullpen, you know. Like, if we talk, I say, you know what, I think if you do this, throw your fastball right here, locate your fastball first, and then you go to the breaking ball, is going to help you to have better location, and, uh, and uh, you're going to establish your fastball. And he said yes, and the next time he threw, I saw him doing the same thing, and then he's kind of... He never listened to you. He never, never... He didn't never want to listen either, you know? He's not like... He's not like he wants to learn, and I know he... He didn't think you knew He's got anything. his way, you know, and he's yeah. tough to change it. That's Miguel Montero. Now, Adam, I, I know in the article... You said a lot more things that, that Montero had to say, but it just appeared like uh, he drove Montero up a wall. What were some of the other players thinking about Bauer? Well, no one would really publicly say anything other than Montero, who tends to be one of the more outspoken individuals on the team. But Ian Kennedy had talked about how he tried to discuss things with Bauer, kind of like, hey, you know what, I had my own issues with Montero early on, but you need to work through this because he knows what he's talking about and it would be a real beneficial situation. And the Diamondbacks all offseason, even towards the end of part of the season, they were saying, you know, Kirk Gibbs and Kevin Towers are talking about how they like Trevor Bauer. He's a good kid. He needs to grow up a little bit, but he's a good kid. They want to work with him. But, you know, what they say publicly and clearly their actions privately paint a different picture here. It's just one of the situations where when you're the young hotshot guy who comes up and you haven't done anything yet in the major leagues and you get to the big league level and you say, I'm going to do it this way. I don't care what you have to say. I'm going to do it my way. It runs a lot of people the wrong way, and Arizona with Kirk Gibson at the helm, he's kind of an old-school mentality, and you got to know that just irritates him, too, because he thinks it should be a certain way. You have to earn that respect as a player, and Trevor Bauer didn't do anything to earn that respect, and instead he said he's just going to ignore what people are trying to tell him. So he's a young kid. He has to learn a few things. He's got a lot of potential, but there is kind of a give and take that 
they each could have done things differently, both Bauer and the organization. Hey, Adam. Uh, Adam, was it a case of the – go ahead, Mark. Well, I, I was saying before you came on, Adam, that uh, when he pitched against the Reds last year, uh, the next day they were commenting on uh, many of the things you've said, that he, he's got a great arm and great potential, but uh, there were some issues with his maturity and those kinds of things. And they compared him to Homer Bailey. When Homer Bailey came up, uh, you know, great arm. <laughs> he, had, he was the minor league pitcher of the year for the Reds for several years, the AAA pitcher of the year in all of AAA. And you couldn't tell him anything. And he came in and he got his brains beat out for, you know, a year, year and a half, even two years. But it finally came around, and now Homer Bailey, with his stuff, which I think is comparable to, to Bowers, uh, he, he has a chance to, to be a 15-18 game winner this year. So I think you're right. I think I think the the Indians made a great deal in getting Bauer for Gregorius. I think Gregorius is a good shortstop, but Bauer could be an outstanding pitcher. I mean, I, I think the guy could win 15, 16 games this year. He does have that potential, and it's kind of one of those things when you talk about that choice specifically. The Diamondbacks did it for a few reasons. I mean, one of which they don't believe in Bauer. They fear like he's just not worth the trouble that he's going to present to them. But they also needed a shortstop. They look at their minor league system. They don't have anyone in that position that was a surefire guy. And Kevin Tyler's really believes in Gregorius. And so you look at the Diamondbacks farm system, they have a lot of good pitching prospects. Bauer is just the tip of the iceberg. They are very deep at that position. It doesn't mean you want to get rid of prospects. But it means you feel like, you know, you identify who your guys are going forward and you get rid of the ones who aren't, and that's where they view Bauer. But it was a trade made out of someone I think they were just frustrated with him. I think they made a mistake in drafting him, or at least they made a mistake in evaluating what kind of person he was. They just decided they didn't want to deal with him anymore. So, will it turn back to bite them? I mean, it might, because, yeah, if all it takes to turn around is, what, 22 years old right now? He has time to grow and mature as a person. And once he does that, as long as the stuff is still there, and there's no reason I think it won't be, he's going to be a good pitcher. How good? I guess that remains to be seen, but there's no denying the talent is there. Adam, before we get into the Gregorius uh, part of this, uh, like you brought up just a few seconds ago, one other quick question about Bauer. Was there mm-hmm. one thing that he did that really uh, ticked the owner off, that led the owner to, to basically dictate that he be traded? Was there just one thing, or was it just everything combined? It was pretty much a combination of things. I mean, his, his warm-up routine, the long toss, is fun to watch as a fan, but as, you know, just traditional baseball people, they view it differently. And his, his mentality, his stubbornness, and uh, his rapping isn't too good either, so maybe that played a while. I don't know if you guys had caught some of that. But just overall, his personality, his demeanor, he's a very smart guy. He's very, very stubborn. I think for the Diamondbacks, there's a culture, there's a kind of a mentality they want their players to have. And the word gritty's been thrown around quite a bit over the last few months, and Trevor Bauer doesn't fit into that mold, at least not at this point in his career. How does D.D. Gregorius fit into the Diamondbacks' plans this year? Any at all, or are they going to send him back down to the minors and get him over this injury? Well, he's still got to get back onto the field. He's just started swinging a bat a little bit recently with the elbow injury. But I think their plan, as you talk to Kevin Towers, unless he came in and spring trainers just tearing it up and wowing people, they're going to start him off in AAA and let him learn the ropes there because Towers has said, that when they call Gregorius up, it's not to be a spot starter or a, you know, every rotational player. It's to be the shortstop. So they're not going to bring him up until either there's a desperate need or they think he's truly ready to be the guy going forward. So they view him as a guy who could be the long-term answer at the position. And if he is, then who knows? His trade won't be so bad for Arizona. But right now you're not going to see early returns from Gregorius, at least not in the early parts of the season. 
it's interesting that the Reds made the decision. I mean, back here in Cincinnati, there was a lot of speculation over the last two years of who was going to be the heir apparent uh, at shortstop. And they had either Zach Cozart or D.D. Gregorius. And I, I think the the jury was was out on that thing until that decision until last year when uh, it was proven that Zach Cozart could, could handle the uh, everyday shortstop. He, you know, Cozart came up two years ago and played 10, 12 games before he hurt his elbow, but uh, he showed a lot of stuff at, at AAA. Uh, you, you've got a real talent in Gregorius, and but as long as he stays a shortstop, uh, I think you could you could afford to have a 230, 240 hitter. He'll steal you some bases, and he's got a cannon for an arm when it's healthy. Uh, you know, he, he's really a gifted athlete, but I don't think he's going to be the you know a three hit, a 300 hitter. But normally, you don't expect that from your shortstop anyway. So I, I think you made a good trade, and if they're patient with him, I think he's going to be a very serviceable shortstop for you guys for a long time. And a lot of it comes down to you know you can afford that type of guy in your lineup if the rest of your lineup has hitters in it. And the right. back that may be exactly what they're thinking. Like you can have a gold glover at shortstop who just plays outstanding defense. He's hitting 230, 240 if you have the hitters around him. And that's what they're going for. And if you look at their lineup overall right now, there's not really any holes. They don't have any superstars, but there's a lot of guys who can do something, who can get on base and put the bat on the ball. So Gregorius could fit in without Towers when they made the trade. He compared him to Derek Jeter. So he looks like a young Derek Jeter out there, which might be a little much. You guys have seen more Gregorius than I have, but that seems like a lofty thing to say about someone. But, yeah, the reputation was an outstanding glove, and as long as the bat grows and comes around a little bit, but the question is how many light-hitting, good defensive shortstops can a team have because they just traded for Cliff Pennington over from Oakland in the offseason, and they picked up another one in the Justin Upton deal. So one of these guys will be their shortstop, and if it's Gregorius, then that makes his trade look better because he's young, he does have the potential, and, you know, we all like to see some great defense at that position too, so I think they could deal without the bat if he's that good defensively. Well, I always like the fact he was a switch hitter and he could steal you some bases. He'll, he, I think he'll have a much better on base percentage than you might expect. Uh, he's not he's not Derek Jeter because he, he won't have that power, but uh, yeah. you know, he, he's he's a gap hitter. And uh, again, I, I hated that the Reds got rid of him because I think they could have uh, put him at shortstop and move Zach Kozark to third base, which is what I wanted them to do. But uh, I think you know that, this is the kind of trade. It's it's too early, as you well know. You can't evaluate a trade of this magnitude in the first year or even the first two years. This could be no, something that you can't really judge fairly for three or four years. So I, I think there's good talent moved around, and, and if I think anybody might get hurt by this trade, it's going to be the Reds because they gave up a lot of talent for probably a one-year player in in shoe. So uh, they better win this year. But I think Arizona, uh, if they're patient, they, they have uh, a good deal. And I think the Indians made a terrific deal. I, mean, they, I, I think the Indians of the three teams actually got the best talent. Yeah, and anytime you're making a deal with prospects who are like that, Gregorius hasn't done much at the major league level. Bauer hasn't done much at the major league level. There's always that mystery factor. And since Bauer was the more highly touted, more recognizable name, and that one a lot of people panned him. And I remember I wrote a column shortly after the deal, that said, I wasn't necessarily for it because I like Bauer's potential. But what it will come down to is how the glorious does for the Diamondbacks because if he does turn into that everyday shortstop, it doesn't really matter what Bauer does. He can go win Cy Young Awards for Cleveland, but you got a player that you needed and that is helping you win baseball games. But down the road, who knows? Because it may take Bauer a few years, it may take the glorious a few years to really become something. 
But I guess whoever starts off better, if Bauer's excellent this year and Bivoris is kind of wasting away in AAA, then people are going to judge the trade like that. But, yeah, I think there's talent involved here. There's good players, good prospects involved in these deals, except for Shinsu Chu. He's kind of a veteran of the bunch. And the Reds, they're looking to win now, though, so that's why you make that deal, whereas the Diamondbacks are kind of in that middle ground and the Indians you know, are kind of rebuilding and trying to start from scratch a little bit. So it seems like everyone may have gotten what they wanted, but until they start playing games and until they – get a few seasons into that, but it's really going to be tough to declare a winner. Adam Green, our guest from ArizonaSports.com. Adam, is Bauer Major League ready right now? I don't think he's anything left to prove at the minor league level, if that makes sense. He didn't look Major League ready in his stint with the Diamondbacks last season, but could, with that could have been an injury, could have just been random ineffectiveness, he's a young pitcher. I think he's better served being in the Major Leagues right now and taking his lumps there and who knows, maybe that'll humble him a little bit and kind of get him on the right track mentality-wise because he's already torn apart AAA pitching, and Reno for the Diamondbacks is a really big hitter's park. Like People put up great video game-type numbers there, and he was excellent there. So I think he's got minor league figured out. I'd let him take his lumps at the major league level and see what you got. Adam, I want to go back out to Arizona right now and talk to you about the D-backs. What was the problem with Justin Upton out there, and why... (laughs) Were the Diamondbacks so anxious to get rid of him? That is an excellent question. Um, it seems like the last few off-seasons his name had been brought up in trade rumors, and last off-season was different because he was coming off a season where he was in the MVP voting. They won the division. They looked really good. And Last year he hurt his thumb early in the season and never seemed to recover from that. Had a down year. The power numbers weren't there. Fans kind of turned on him a little bit. He's one of those guys where I think he's in a way a victim of the expectations as a former number one pick who was a face of the franchise at such an early age and had put up monster numbers. There was a certain expectation of what he should be doing. And a down year like his last year was still, he was, well, I think, the league leader in Ron scored in the National League. He was still productive. He was a decent defender, improving, but not a great one. But people just want more. And at some point, when you don't get it, you don't feel like you're going to get it, it's best to cut ties with him and say, we're moving on from this era. I think he's an excellent player. That's the one deal that I wasn't for. I was okay with the Bauer trade. I was absolutely not for the Justin Upton deal. Way too talented. He's shown it. He has way too much potential. He's a hard worker. Just didn't work out for him last year, but I think that's a very good player that Atlanta got in that trade. Adam, what's what's the general feeling? Uh, I, I read an interesting comment uh, the other day about the Dodgers uh, in your division and that they are now viewed as a team to hate. Uh, because of all the money they spent. Uh, what's the feeling in, in the Diamondbacks' camp uh, in terms of their competitiveness against the Dodgers? And I mean, you have the World Series champions and you have the Dodgers, which I think you know, on paper are a much better team than the Giants right now. Yeah, when you talk to people, Kevin Towers was on our radio station, actually, I think it was a week and a half ago, maybe two weeks ago. Just, I'm not afraid of the Dodgers. That The Diamondbacks have gone into L.A. and they've won games. There. They've historically had a good record against the Dodgers at least the last couple of seasons, and he's right. They've done a good job against them. I think it's any fear, any hate towards the Dodgers, there's a lot of jealousy. I think everyone wishes their team could spend that kind of money and try to put a product on the field. Baseball-wise, you look at their roster, one, you know, one through nine, the pitching rotation, they look really, really good. But they looked pretty good last year, too, after they made their deals, and it didn't work out for them. And then you kind of spend all your time worrying about the Dodgers, and then you said you have the World Series champion Giants in the division. They're not something to sneeze at either, so... It's a tough division. The Diamondbacks are kind of taking a different approach. They get rid of the star players. They're kind of flying under the radar a little bit, which is probably what they like. It's probably where they want to be. 
but they're certainly not the favorite to win the NL West because the division, which used to be one of the lesser ones in baseball, suddenly looks like one of the best. So not necessarily a bad place. People aren't pessimistic about the Diamondbacks, but I think people are more curious because we don't know what the Diamondbacks are, so we can't even really worry about the Dodgers and Giants quite yet. Yeah, I was looking at that Dodger uh, roster the other day, and wow, it's all you can say is wow. <laughs> I mean, yeah. I mean, they they have they they have everything on on that roster. I mean, if their if their team performs up to their base back of their baseball card, but the only thing I, I can think of is we were saying the same thing last year about the Angels, and mm-hmm. you know they got up to a bad start, never recovered, and people forget that last year, except for Crawford, uh, the Dodgers, uh, you know, they picked up some pitching obviously in the off season, but you know everybody expected them to take off after they made all those trades mid-season, it never happened. So right. uh, you, you, you just never know with baseball because there's so much parity on on the field with these teams that it doesn't take much to have a team go off the rails and, uh, you know, and not, not win. And uh, the Dodgers could fall into that category, but I think the people in the West have their hands full to contend with them this year. Absolutely. If the Diamondbacks have one thing going for them, it's going to be their pitching staff. Just their starting rotation looks to be really formidable. Their bullpen, Kevin Towers, he really cares a lot about the bullpen. Put a lot into that. They look like they should be able to shorten games to about six or seven innings on a nightly basis. So pitching is the great equalizer in baseball. And if the Diamondbacks is as good as it can be, then they can compete with those guys. But, yeah, as you look at the lineups, the Dodgers, the Giants, I mean, the Rockies, too, have a pretty good lineup. The Padres look like they could surprise. It's not going to be easy, but there's just a lot of question marks with the Diamondbacks right now. That will this gritty style, will this lineup of guys who aren't going to strike out as much, but are going to put the bat on the ball like a Martin Prado, will that work? And I think it's just way too early to tell. But there's, I think, cautious optimism in that they think that they're a good team. And I guess everyone does at this point in the all right? So that doesn't really mean much. <laughs> Adam Green, our guest. Adam, you know, Mark and I are old enough to remember Kirk Gibson as a player uh, coming up through Michigan State, playing football for them, and then moving into Detroit and then going on to the Dodgers. He, he, you, you mentioned it very well that he has an old-school attitude, and he was known as a surly guy uh, as a player. What's he like to cover as a manager? Not at all what you'd expect. He's very calm, very cerebral-like. You know, if you ask him a question that he's not too fond of, he'll give you a very well-thought-out answer, but he's pretty amiable. He's not a bad guy to cover overall. He's not necessarily the best talker if you don't ask a question that he likes or if you ask him something that he's not really in the mood to answer, he'll let you know about it. But for the most part, he's pretty pleasant and definitely not the fiery guy you would have expected. Even I think he's only been ejected a couple times in his time as a manager that he's not that guy. He's very, Zen isn't the right word, but he's very calm about things. He's really methodical about what he's doing out there. And the media picks up on that. And I think most of the media out here is pretty, well, they're, I don't want to say behind him because the media should never be behind anybody. But I think they respect him, that he does his job, and he respects the media. So it's a pretty good relationship all the way around, but not really what you'd expect it to be from watching him as a player. Hey, Adam, one one final question, and we really appreciate your time tonight. But uh, what are the expectations this spring for Arizona as compared for the last couple of years? Well, two years ago, they had no expectations. They had been the, one of the worst teams in the National League West for a few seasons, and just there's no hope, and then they won 92 games or – 190, if I forget the exact number, and won the NL West. Last year, people expected them to do the same thing, win the division and possibly compete for the World Series. This year, I think it's more back towards the people don't think they're going to be terrible, but I don't think anyone's expecting a division. I think they're thinking mid-80s win total, 
you know, on a good day, you know, best case scenario, worst case, probably not too much less than that. They're not a bad team. They don't seem to have any real holes. They don't strike again as a team that can contend. So I think it's probably better for them. The expectations and pressure that they had last year seem to do a little bit to them. So I think coming in as this team that's kind of the underdog coming in as the team that's just there as opposed to the contender that has all these expectations placed on them, I think it probably suits them better. Well, we we really appreciate the time tonight, Adam, and good luck the rest of the year. And, uh, you know, I, I love watching uh, Kirk Gibson as a manager. I always used to love him, love watching him as a player. And Arizona is one of my uh, favorite teams in the National League, so I'll look forward to seeing them. I really appreciate the time tonight. Thanks, Adam. Thank you, Adam. Thanks for having me. Adam Green from ArizonaSports.com, reporter, columnist, and also web content editor. Our guest here this evening talking about Trevor Bauer, D.D. Gregorius, Kirk Gibson, and the rest of the Arizona Diamondbacks. Our, our thanks to him tonight. Mark, um, you know, as you talked about, uh, D.D. Gregorius uh, out in Arizona, so now the the Reds uh, are going to have to put up with a lot of things. I want to talk about the Reds' uh, pitching staff right now. Uh, let, let's move from Cleveland out to Cincinnati and talk about the Reds' pitching staff. They're making one I think a bold move, Mark, and the fact that they're moving Chapman into the starting rotation. They did it last spring, then put him into the closer role, but are they hard-headed enough this year to keep him in that starting rotation? I think a lot is going to depend on how Mike Leake pitches in spring training. Uh, you know, he was, I think he was eight and, or seven and eight last year and got off to a terrible start. He was 0-5, I believe, and then came back and had a pretty decent second half of the season. But if he, if he could deliver what you expect – out of a number five starter, and you put Chapman back in that bullpen, you've changed the complexion of that team. Uh, if Chapman does, if Leak does not perform as they would expect a four or five starter to perform, then you've got arguably your best starter. You, you've now moved uh, Cueto and Latos and Bailey down a rung, and you now have a new number one at least with stuff. I'm not saying with, with experience, and I would still make Mike, or I'd still make Cueto my, my number one starter, but imagine having that starting rotation that I mentioned. Arroyo is now your number five starter, and he's going to throw 200 innings, and, you know, the guy's averaged 14 wins a year for the last uh, five or six, seven years, uh, and he's your number five. Homer Bailey could be your number one. Matt Latos could be your number one. Cueto could be your number one, and certainly Chapman could be. So if you put Chapman in that rotation, I, I, I claim the Reds have the best pitching in baseball. If you put him in okay, the bullpen... Okay, well, Chapman, talk, Chapman talked a little bit about what he's working on uh, this spring, Mark, as, as far as becoming a starting pitcher. All I did was just only do the same thing I've been doing the whole time. This is a spring training game, and the, the, what you do in a spring training game is that. Uh, you, you, I was working in those kind of pitches that I don't control, pitches that I don't use it too much, and that was uh, the slow, uh, the breaking pitch and the slow pitches that I want to work right now. I feel really happy about it. I feel that I could, I could put the pitches where, and lo locate the pitches where I want. I, the results were, you saw what happened. I mean, the results were good, and you're right. Yes, I feel really happy about it. Mark, does he have enough command of enough pitches to be a starter? Uh, yes, he does. And, and he was talking about his slow pitches. He was throwing 91-mile-an-hour sliders 
that's a slow pitch. And uh, <laughs> it, it, I mean, you're talking about something that most human beings can't do, throw a breaking ball that fast. So the, the Reds have a big choice to make. Do, do you put him in the rotation where he's going to throw about 150 pitches or 150 innings? They'll probably put a, a limit on him. Or do you put him in the bullpen where he's going to throw 70, 80 p- innings for a year, but he's virtually unhittable? It's just, you know, there's no wrong decision on it. Uh, you're going to get quality pitching from him no matter where you put him. The question is strategically, where are you better off? Are you better having every game? Basically, you could you could shut down after six innings because you have a bullpen that can pitch the last three. Uh, or do you put him in the rotation where, you know, it was, it's hard to imagine that he would not have an ERA around two, two and a half. Uh, he's going to win you 15, 14, 13 games because he'll have limited pitch count. But he's a shutdown starter. What's You can't make a wrong decision on this. So the people say the Reds are taking a chance. I don't believe that. I think it's a matter of just looking at what you have. And if if Homer Bailey pitches like he did today in, in his outing, uh, I frankly, I would go with Leak as my number five starter and put Chapman in the bullpen. If if Leak or the rest of the guys are not pitching up to their potential, I would bring Chapman in as a starter and and fortify my bullpen. You know, and put Leak uh, in in long relief. Or the other issue that has come up here in the Dayton papers or Cincinnati papers is that you basically have a, a six-man rotation whereby Chapman pitches five innings of every game and then Leak comes in and finishes, you know, pitches three or four every time. So you have a, a split position on, on your starting rotation where you have two guys basically filling one, one, one spot. So there's there's all kinds of speculation here in the in the local papers, but I don't see it as a right or wrong decision. It's just a matter of wherever you put him. He's probably going to be your best starter, or he's going to be your, your your closer. Well, okay, let's say he's a starter. Who's the closer? Broxton. And, and is Broxton that a, a step up or a step down from oh, last it's definitely year? A step- it's definitely a step down. I mean, your closer is not going to be as good. I mean, Broxton has is, is never been a Chapman, even in his prime. So you are going to – he's going to have some blown saves, unquestionably, that Chapman would not. No question about that. So I think Reds fans have to be prepared for that. There, I mean, But how many closers in baseball were like Chapman last year? I can think of one, Kimbrell. Uh, from Atlanta, uh, who else? I mean, he he's absolutely the the lights out closer that every team would love to have. But he's also how many number one starters are out there? True number ones, very few. So again, I don't think there's a wrong decision. I mean, you 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 have to pick your poison. Broxton would be a great closer for you know ninety percent of the teams in Major League Baseball. He's just not Chapman. No, that that's true. And but you talk about the split starter. Dusty Baker would be crucified for that idea. He's already got the reputation of being a a, a pitching disaster. 
uh, manager. And and That's, if he you know, tried to pull something like that, I swear, Mark, they, they'd crucify him in Cincinnati. No, but he would do that. Number one, that's uh, I was in Chicago. I lived in Chicago uh, ten years ago when Pryor and uh, by the way, the Reds signed Pryor this week. When Car- right, Car- I wanted Wood to bring that up too. Uh, he, he had nothing to do with that. I mean, it, it was <laughs> that's that's not a fair charge on, on on him. But he, what I mentioned, would the reason he would do that, it would help Chapman. It, it would limit his innings. Like you tell him, okay, you're going to start. But you're only going to be throwing 90 pitches a start. So it's up to you. You want to pitch three innings or you want to pitch seven, but you're not going to go more than 90 pitches a game. And that's that would be a protection for the pitcher. So he certainly wouldn't be charged with hurting the pitcher by doing that. It, it would be helping Chapman and keeping his pitch count down. Well, we've already talked about a couple of question marks with the Reds. They definitely have to be the front runner, I would think, for the Central Division. But with those two question marks, especially Chew in center field and moving Chapman into the rotation, and and you say that there's no wrong decision, uh, especially with Chapman, what's got to go wrong with the Reds in order for them to really screw up this division this year? You know, I I think my fear uh, about the Reds this year is offense. Uh, I mean, I, I last year a lot of things came together offensively. You had you had two rookies play out of their minds last year in Cozart and Frazier, and to expect that for a second year in a row after a major league pitching staff on on other teams, they've had a chance to analyze these guys. And don't forget that the last two months of the year, Frazier really struggled. He hit something like 170 the last two months of the year, so they were figuring him out. And uh, he, he's, he's going to hit some home runs. He's, he has some power. But, but Cozart had a very, very low on-base percentage. He struck out a lot, has some power. But I, I fear that if the Reds fall down, if, I mean, if, if they have another injury like Tobato, like they did last year, to one of their key offensive players, I think this team could be in trouble. And that's what scares me about the Reds is the – the offensive production, uh, you know, again, they were in the middle of the pack last year. Uh, they didn't blow people away with their offense. Now, part of that was Drew Stubbs, uh, candidly. I mean, he just, he simply did not perform up to standard, and, and that hurt them. Uh, they're, they're catching I – mean, Devin Messerocco was a complete uh, failure last year offensively, uh, hit under 200, uh, had very little power, and they were expecting a lot more from him. Uh, so you look up and down that lineup. Jay Bruce hit, hit 250 or, or in the 250s. <laughs> There's not a lot of depth there, and if the Reds win this year, it's going to be because of their pitching. And if they lose this year, it's going to be because they don't score enough runs for that pitching. So the pitchers can have a great year, and you know have low combined ERAs. They didn't miss a start last year. But that offense, uh, it scares me. And I hope, you know, I'm wrong about that. But I, I see the Reds losing a lot of games this year, 3-2, to 4-3, two, 2-1. to, three, two to one. And those are terribly frustrating losses. And then, again, if you don't have Chapman at the back of the bullpen, uh, you know, those, those heart-wrenching losses because you don't have enough offense uh, can come back to kill you in September. So, you ask me what their Achilles heel is, I think it's offense. Was it a mistake to re-sign Ryan Ludwig? I think so. 
I, I think they could have gone out and for the money they signed Ludwig, you you can't, you could have had Michael Bourne or close to it. And that's what I hope they were going to do uh, is uh, is sign Bourne and and not sign Ludwig. Uh, you know Ludwig, uh, he scares me only because of his inconsistency. Uh, in June of last year, he was hitting under 200. And there, there's just uh, so many holes in that lineup that I think could come back to haunt the Reds. And, uh, you know, maybe everything is made up by healthy Joey Votto because he does make that, that lineup so much better. But, uh, you know, I, I can see them pitching around um, Votto and getting right to Ludwig, uh, getting to a Jay Bruce who's going to hit some home runs, but he's also going to hit 250. So uh, that's uh, – and what, what concerns me about the Reds organization, they, they, they certainly have done a great job in developing and acquiring some, some pitchers, but I don't see a lot of pop in their, in their minor leagues offensively. Uh, they have a couple guys. Lutz is a, is a guy who has some power, and he can do some damage down the road. But, you know, you, you don't see that kind of depth offensively that they've had in the past. No, you're you're absolutely right there. Um, you know, last year we talked a lot about Billy Hamilton, and uh, you even brought up the the case scenario towards the end of last year. Uh, Billy Hamilton's trade value may never be higher. What's he showing in spring training right now, and and what's the scuttlebutt about him? The scuttlebutt about him is he's got a hole in his bat, and he he's striking out at an alarming rate in spring training where you should be. I mean, those are the times you ought to be putting the bat on the ball and showing what you got. Now, I didn't see the stats today. The Reds got beat again today. They only scored two runs. But I, I didn't see the box score. But uh, he had struck out, I think, seven or eight times uh, already, and more than anybody else in spring training. He's not the guy that you bring into an offense like the Reds right now. As uh, Adam was saying, you can afford to have a, a 230, 240 hitter, and that's what I think he's going to be. Uh, but this team can't afford that. And if you're going to bring in a guy who is a lesser defensive player but the same kind of hitter as Drew Stubbs, then you haven't made much improvement on your team. And you can't steal first base. And that's what this guy is going to have a problem with as far as I can see. And, again, I, I meant that when I said last year, what could you have gotten for a Drew Stubbs last year after he had stolen 155 bases? I think you could have gotten a lot. Uh, if he goes to AAA this year and hits 210 or 220 or 230, even if he does steal 75 or 80 bases, which he probably will in AAA, uh, you know, you, you don't have as much value as you had last year, that's for sure. Well, what do you expect them to do with him? Well, he certainly is not going to make the roster <clears throat> this year, and unless he turns it around offensively, uh, he's going to be a spot player. He's not going to be the guy that you know you're going to turn to as a, a 300 hitter. Uh, he, he he just doesn't have that kind of, of, of bat control at this point in his career. Can he change that? Of course he can. He can hit the weight room. Uh, he can put on some weight. But if he does that, <clears throat> then he's going to lose some speed. So, you know, what do you want? Uh, with if he if he's a step or two slower, he can still probably steal you thirty to forty bases a year. 
But he's not going to steal 100 bases in the big leagues because he won't get on base enough with what he has offensively right now. So the, the Reds have a talent there, and there's no question about that. But my point was a year ago, what would have been his value if, he, if the Reds would have shopped him around Major League Baseball? What could they have gotten? Well, let's move to the catching position. Uh, Hannigan was the uh, number one catcher last year, but, of course, Devin Mazzarocco was one of the prime uh, prospects that the Reds had. He didn't have a very good year last year, Mark, but he seems to be uh, hitting the ball this year in spring training. What's the status of the catching position? Well, again, I, I don't get too hung up on spring training, no matter what I see, good or bad at this point. I mean, the, the thing that would bother me about a Billy Hamilton is he's not making contact. Uh, but you know you could you could hit you know smash the ball uh, and it's caught a lot of times in spring training and your average is down. But I think Devin Mesoraco has a chance to be a great catcher in the big leagues. He he, he has tremendous talent. Uh, he he's got a quick bat, uh, but he was pulling off the ball so bad last year. Uh, he I think the biggest thing that happened to him he had a grand slam home run against Atlanta, and he started yanking everything. At, if he learns to go to the opposite field with his power, he can still take the ball out in right field. Defensively, um, he made, uh, I think, a lot of progress last year, although a lot of the pitchers did not like to pitch to him. And he, uh, I think he learned last year from his mistakes. He was kind of a hardhead, uh, like we were talking about uh, Trevor Bauer. Uh, but, you know, it's a maturation process, and it's, it's really tough for a kid to come up and be a catcher in the big leagues. Uh, that's the most demanding position. And he probably had to go through more learning last year than just about anybody on the roster. But I, I've not given up on him yet. Uh, but, you know, Ryan Hannigan is a good journeyman catcher. He's going to hit you 260, 270, have a 340, 350 on base percentage, throw out 40% of the runners. <clears throat> that's a good catcher. So, uh, you know, the Reds, I think they're okay catching-wise. Mark, just for uh, the time being, I want to move away from the Reds and the Indians and talk about the World Baseball Classic. Brandon Phillips is involved in that, and um, he's pretty excited about playing on the team. Try to go there and, and win something for the USA team. That's a, that would be a great goal. I always wanted to be playing for the USA team. I was a bat boy in the 1996 Olympics. Uh, Doc Jones was there. Troy Gloss was there. Chris Benson, all those guys. And I always wanted to. I said, Wow! I always wanted to be on the team. A lot of people, Mark, don't like the fact that uh, this World Baseball Classic takes away players from their teams during spring training. What's your feeling about it? I agree with that sentiment. I, I don't like the fact that they that they have it at this time of year. I mean, I, I don't understand why they don't have it in November or December. Uh, it's I, I don't mind the the concept of it, but why do they uh, they run it into spring training? When a lot of these guys, their their careers are dependent on spring training, and they they're torn <clears throat> between an obligation to their country, which I understand, but they this is their livelihood, <clears throat> and I'm always afraid these guys are going to get hurt. So um, maybe they can explain why they do it this time of year. I, I would I think I would be more for it if they would do it at some other time where it didn't interfere with spring training. Well, you know, you have almost the same situation uh, during the Olympic years when the NHL shuts down for a couple of weeks. 
Yeah, you're right. Uh, but you know, we're talking about baseball, and uh, hockey to me is a is a, a different kind of major league sport. <clears throat> baseball, particularly with spring training uh, being such an important integral part of a, of a young man's career, I just think it puts unfair. I mean, they they can't win uh, if they don't play their you know their home country. Uh, gives them a lot of grief. And I like what the Reds did. <clears throat> the Reds took the pressure off Cueto by saying, we have it in our contract with you. We decide if you can play or not, and we've decided you're not playing. And I, I think Cueto, in, in his case, uh, maybe he wanted to play for his home team or his home, uh, Dominican team, but uh, he is not <clears> – <throat> it, it wouldn't make any sense for Johnny Cueto career-wise to, to risk an injury by, by playing in, 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 the, in that kind of basically a all-star team. It doesn't make any sense to me. No, I, I agree with you, and I agree with the fact that I think it probably should be held after the World Series. I, I totally agree with you. Um, uh, but it's one of those cases, Mark, where I don't think Major League Baseball uh, has any uh, say in when this thing is going to be played. You, do you know who even runs it? No, I don't. Uh, th- there is a uh, you know World Baseball Federation uh, that controls a lot of what happens internationally. But I think what's happening is that many of the players now, in, their, in renegotiate, renegotiating their contracts, the teams are, are wising up, and they're making that a part of the contractual negotiation. They're saying, look, we're, we're paying you $22 million a year. We're not paying you to pitch for you know, Canada or whoever you're, wherever you're from. Uh, we're not even paying you to pitch for the U.S. team. Uh, what I don't understand is why not make that a – you can make it a professional tournament, but you could make it for guys who have never been on major league rosters. That would be great for them. It would be great exposure for them. Uh, it would be you know, as good as spring training because they play every day. But uh, these guys, uh, you know, like having Albert Pujols play for, for his home country, it makes no sense. Even Joey Votto, I mean, with, with his knee injury – he, he announced today he's playing for Canada. Well, the guy is just coming back from two knee surgeries, and now he's going to go risk it. If he's going to get hurt, I'd rather have him get hurt playing for the Reds, not playing for Canada. To me, it just, I mean, he just signed a, a $250 million contract. What happens if he goes down and breaks a leg or breaks an arm or has a career-ending injury? I mean, it, it just it doesn't make any sense to me for, for, for that purpose, for an all-star game. All right, I know somebody out there has got to be wondering the same question that I am. How can the Reds tell Johnny Cueto he can't play, but Joey Votto and Brandon Phillips are allowed? Well, there was, there was two issues. <clears throat> one, it was in Cueto's contract, number one, but there's a provision that says that it, with the Major League Baseball contract that if a player was injured the previous year and not healed, so Cueto was injured in the playoffs, and he was on the DL when the season ended. They have the right to say you can't play because he pulled that side muscle. Now, in the case of Joey Votto, they didn't have the right because he was back on the roster and did not end the season on the disabled list. So in that, in, you know, that was the, the player's call at that point. So, it, and also, many of the contracts now, as I said before, the newer contracts have provisions in there where they limit what you can do in the offseason, like you can't, in some cases, you can't play basketball or you can't 
ride a motorcycle or you know whatever the provision is. But those things are baked into contracts now because I mean teams have hundreds of millions of dollars invested in these players in some cases, and I think they have every right to say, hey, look, we don't want you riding a motorcycle or we don't want you playing in a baseball tournament. Well, Mark, one of the things last year that we kind of wondered about what Major League Baseball was thinking was were the dates that they put the Reds and the Indians facing each other. And I had an opportunity to look at the schedule earlier today, and lo and behold, guess what? Major League Baseball has not learned its lesson. <laughs> the Reds wow. and the Indians are playing twice this year, actually four times, twice in Cincinnati, twice in Cleveland, and it happens to be in the same week. Uh, they're going to be playing in Cincinnati on May 27th, which is Memorial Day. That'll be an afternoon game. And then the 28th, they play at Great American Ballpark. Then they come to Cleveland on the 29th and 30th of May, and that's it for the Reds and the Indians for the year. They play four times, two times in each city, and two times in each city in the same week. And during the week. And during the week, Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday. What I don't understand about that is that when I when I first heard about interleague play, and I thought it was a good idea, the reason they did it was to increase attendance. So if you're going to maximize the attendance, wouldn't you put them on a weekend to get people that maybe from Cincinnati who want to go to Cleveland, or vice versa, and get you know both stadiums filled up for four to six games? I mean, they historically, as you know, played three times a year because of the new scheduling. The the Houston Astros moving to the American League, they've had to reconfigure the schedule. I understand that. But, uh, again, why not put those games on a weekend? And, you know, I'd rather see one three-game series home and away alternated year to year. Uh, I think they play too many interleague games, frankly, and I would eliminate most of the interleague games except for games against the Cleveland, you know, the Indians and, uh, you know, maybe one other team that you have a natural kind of rivalry with. But it makes no sense um, to have, I think they played, what, 18 games last year in their league. That can, that can impact and did impact uh, league standings because you're playing so many teams outside your league. And if you play a particularly you know, arduous schedule against the American League teams, uh, it, it makes no sense because other teams are playing such a weak schedule. It, it's just not fair. So I wish they'd reconfigure interleague play, but certainly when you have a natural rivalry like this, why not make it on the weekend? Well, I would agree with you, and I did not have an opportunity to take a look at these ball games, but I would be willing to bet my bottom dollar that the New York Yankees and New York Mets are playing on a weekend. They're closer in proximity than Cleveland and Cincinnati. I would be willing to bet that the Dodgers and the Angels are playing on a weekend, and they are in a closer proximity than the Indians and the Reds. But yet, and I would also be willing to say that probably the Cubs and the White Sox are playing on a weekend also, and they're closer proximity. But yet Major League Baseball finds it necessary to send Cleveland and Cincinnati to play during a weeknight. It would be interesting to check the other schedules because if, in fact, each interleague team you only play twice that would that would preclude playing on the weekend you couldn't play two games on a weekend uh, unless you played on a saturday and sunday which would be very unusual usually you have a three-game series as you know 
So that would be interesting to check that out. Maybe we can do that before next week. Yeah, I think we will because next week I also want to talk about the opening month for both ball clubs. I don't think either ball ball team, Mark, uh, the Reds or the Indians, can afford getting off to a slow start this year because if you look at the opening month for both teams, and I did earlier, but I want to talk more about it next week, they have some monster teams on their schedule. For example, the Reds are going to open up uh, not only with the Angels, but they've also got to play the Nationals and the Cardinals and the Pirates, divisional foes. The Indians are doing the same thing. They're opening up with the Yankees. They've also got the Red Sox, but they've got Toronto uh, on the road. Uh, they have got some monster teams that they're playing early in the year. Both clubs do. I don't think either team can afford to get off to a slow start. Yeah, but I'll take uh, exception to what you just said. Number one, in years past, I would have been very concerned about the Indians playing the Yankees and Red Sox. These are not your father's Yankees and Red Sox, number one. I mean, I, I think on paper, I think the Indians are better than both the Yankees and the Red Sox. So I would think the, the Yankees would be concerned about playing the Indians rather than the other way around. With regard to the Reds, I, I, this is where I, I'm, I'm very concerned <clears throat> If they get off to a slow start this year, um, and that first month is a killer. I mean, they have the first nine games against the Nationals, which I think is the best team in, in, in baseball, frankly, and the Angels, which may be the second best team, and they got the Cardinals. And if they get blown out, they lose seven of nine or eight of nine of those games, I mean, they're off to a horrible start, and the season could be over pretty quickly. And that's what, that's what concerns me about their schedule. Now, if they're going to be a contender, they got to beat those teams. <clears throat> But they're not going to come out of, you know, by May 1st, the season not would be over necessarily, but you're going, to, you're going to tell very quickly with the schedules the Indians and the Reds play if these teams are for real or not because they play so many tough teams early in the year. That's true. Yeah, you're absolutely right. We'll talk more about that. Uh, next week, the opening month for both teams, and also take a look at those other schedules. But we also, Mark, have got some uh, questions coming in from the fans of the show, uh, not only on our Twitter account, at OHBB Co-host, that's our Twitter account name, uh, or also at Alt Sports Talk, uh, and also you can uh, email us too at dmitch at altsportstalk.com. But here's some of the questions that we've got coming in. Um, first of all, Sam writes in and asks Mark uh, that he's heard a lot of national media attention that Shinsu Chu is really a poor defensive outfielder. If that is the case, why would the Reds trade away one of the top defensive outfielders in the game for Chu? We kind of talked about that, but go ahead and answer that question. Well, it's very simple. It's it's a mathematic equation, frankly, uh, Sam, that uh, – Drew Stubbs was a minus 26 war, uh, which is unbelievably bad. I mean, his, his, his ability to help his team win was remarkably low. Uh, he was an outstanding defensive player, but if you look at the numbers, uh, Chu is going to be far more, more valuable overall to the Reds than Drew Stubbs was. And, and I'm, I'm just talking now historically. What he does this year is anybody's guess. But if you just look at the, the numbers in the back of the baseball card, as they say, Chu is going to be a much more effective player for the Reds, even if the fact remains that he is a lesser defensive player. 
you know, a, a center fielder might average three to four putouts per game. It could be more in some games, five, six. But 99% of the balls in center field are caught by just about every center fielder. It's that one or two or three percent that aren't caught. Can they can they cost you a game? Sure. But I think the Reds are a better team this year because of Chu, and because of frankly uh, addition by subtraction. I mean, I think they would have been better, frankly, if they'd have put Chris Heisey in center field last year as opposed to Drew Stubbs. I think the Reds would have won more ball games. Well, Jerry asks about the Cleveland Indians. What was the biggest off-season move that the Indians made this year? Frankly, I think the biggest one that they made uh, was bringing in Terry Francona because if it weren't for Francona, Mark, I don't think they would have even had an opportunity to bring in a Michael Bourne or a, a Nick Swisher. Yeah, I think you're absolutely right on that. I, I was I was flabbergasted when he took that job. <laughs> you and I talked about this last year, and uh, it, I think he would have been. Your concern was that oh, Francona would never, the Indians would never pay Francona the money that he deserves, and uh, you. Were, I think you were right to say that, but uh, you mentioned earlier that's why you were so fooled by the Indians and and their ability to step up and um, <clears throat> take on Francona and his salary. But you know, it, it's very interesting. <clears throat> Same kind of comments when the Reds. Signed Dusty Baker, uh, Dusty Baker four years ago. I mean, he was a lot of money. I think he cost three million a year, three and a half million a year. And people were saying, "Why would you do that? Take that money and get a better shortstop, or get a better third baseman, or whatever." But Dusty Baker, <laughs> with all his de- de- detractors, and I don't know why they're out there, frankly. But uh, this team <laughs> hadn't been to the playoffs in ten years. And now they've gone two out of the last three. So I don't think it's a coincidence. And I think Francona can do the same thing for the Indians. Well, Jerry follows up that question with another question that segues into what you just brought up, Mark. Who would you sign as your manager, Francona or Dusty Baker? Uh, I think Francona, I think they're both in the right spot. I'm not trying to avoid the, uh, the question. But I think for the Indians, I think Francona is the perfect manager because he has won. He won with the Boston Red Sox, and he brings a cachet to a team that hasn't won for a long time that they need. They need that confidence in the manager. They need a guy who's been there, uh, a guy when he says something, they're going to listen. With Dusty Baker, uh, he is famously a player's manager. And he's a, he's a manager that can lead a team that is going to the next level. They, they can win the World Series. The, the team is that good. So I think they're both in the right spot. And, and frankly, it, it's, it, that's a good question because I'm not sure if I was the Indians, I'd hire Dusty Baker if I could. And if I was the Reds, I'm not sure I'd hire Francona if I could because I'm not sure they're the right fit for their team. Yeah, I agree with you, Mark. I I think Terry Francona was the perfect hire for the Indians. We both thought he was last year, but again, like you said, I never thought the Indians would spend the money for him. Um, I never thought the Indians would spend the kind of money that they did. Now, supposedly the reason they had the money to spend was because they sold their TV network, Sports Time Ohio, to Fox Sports Ohio. Then Fox Sports, in turn, 
signed a contract with the Indians to broadcast the games uh, and gave them an excess of around $46, $47 million a year. So that gave the Dolans a lot of money to spend during the offseason, so much so that there's even some talk still around Cleveland, Mark, that they could go out and sign Kyle Loesch uh, and still uh, save some money over what they, they did last year. I'm not sure I want to bring in a Kyle Loesch to this rotation, but that's some of the scuttlebutt that's going on around town right now. Well, that's an interesting story, Kyle Loesch. I mean, this guy, uh, I mean, I, he, again, you wait long enough and the value of these guys come down. And, I, you know, you, you don't think of collusion necessarily, but I think major league owners have come to the same conclusion simultaneously. Uh, you know, wow, what a coincidence. That signing these ridiculously high contracts, and Carl Crawford you know, being a, a poster boy for, for bad contracts, but uh, I don't think you're going to see that anymore. Uh, it just it, it doesn't pay off. It, it, there's there's no indication that signing uh, these guys to these mega contracts is going to lead to a World Series. And I think the last bastion of of that theory this year is going to be the Dodgers. I mean, th- their payroll is just beyond comprehension. They must win, and and they must win convincingly. I mean, if this team doesn't win 104, 105 games this year and win the division going away and make it at least to the World Series, it, it has to be thought of as a, a, a season that is unsuccessful. So it, it'll, it'll be very interesting. And you notice how the Yankees have pulled back and, and the Red Sox have pulled back after the money they spent over the last decade. Uh, so it, it'll be very interesting to see uh, what the Dodgers do and then how teams like the Reds and the Indians, who are moving up the ladder and, you know, the Reds are going to probably be over $100 million when it's all done, if not this year, next year for sure. And, uh, you know, that, that is just an incredible amount of money. And we always thought that the Indians and the Reds would never be able to be in that stratosphere, but both are going to be approaching that this year. Yeah, I agree. Petey Rose 1 says, uh, Mark, uh, he loves the Reds' rotation, but they proved last year that they lacked a legitimate ace. What he wants to know is... Are they a better team this season with Chapman in the rotation, in your opinion? Well, I, I disagree with the premise they didn't have an ace. Johnny Cueto is an ace by every by every metric. Uh, innings pitched, he pitched uh, over 200 innings. He won 18 ball games. Uh, he had a low ERA. I mean, that, that that is an ace by by any definition. I think the Reds this year could have as many as four aces if Chapman starts, and I, I'm serious about that. I mean. The way Bailey is throwing, the way he finished last year, uh, when you have uh, uh, Cueto and Matt Latos uh, and, and Chapman in that rotation, and then Arroyo, uh, that, that's that, that's a terrific rotation, even without Chapman. But as I said before, you put him at the top of that rotation or pitch him. Imagine a rotation where you start off <clears throat> right-hander with Cueto, come back with uh, Latos, and then you have... Uh, maybe Arroyo number three, just to you know to ha- have a, a slow, a slow pitch type pitcher, and then finish up with Chapman and uh, Arroyo or um, Chapman and Bailey. I mean that is that is a stud pitching staff. <laughs> so uh, as I said, if the Reds fall down this year, it's just hard to imagine that you're going to have five starters <laughs> underperform. 
maybe one of the starters won't be as good as we think, but my gosh, uh, the Reds have never, ever had a pitching staff going into a season on paper like this one. Yeah, I was going to ask, do you ever remember a, a Reds pitching staff being this good? Not not close, Dave. I, honestly, I'm not trying to you know, be hyperbolic here. It's just uh, in all the years I followed the Reds, they've never, ever had a pitching uh, staff like this. And, of course, even back in the Big Red Machine days, they were not known as a pitching team even then. I mean, there was a lot of pitching staffs better than that team uh, on paper and even uh, statistically. But, uh, you know, th- this is the best. And uh, if they win, I think it's going to be because of their pitching. And if they lose, it's because their hitters don't come through. Why the signing of Mark Pryor, then? I-, I was really happy with that signing. I mean, he had a decent year last year. He had a three, 3.96 ERA in AAA. And he had just come back from surgery. And I saw this guy pitch in Chicago. And from a physical perspective, this guy is a stud. I mean, he's the thing that amazed me about Mark Pryor, I've been around a lot of athletes my, my whole life. This guy's legs look like sequoias. And he, I've never seen anybody with, with calves as big as this guy and thighs. He's just a massive guy. And uh, I, I just hope that he can come back and for a year or two with the Reds or somebody else, that he can, he can pitch like he did when he was 22, 23, 24 years old. Now, they say, uh, I've talked to a couple guys in, in, who have, been, have seen him work out this year, and they say he's throwing hard. He's throwing in the, in the high 90s, and uh, he never had a control problem, per se. Always had a great breaking ball. So I, I was happy with that signing. What's the downside? I mean, you know, you sign a guy to a minor league contract. He's not taking up a 40-man spot. Uh, and if he comes through, you, you, you just added, uh, you know, a huge piece to your pitching staff. Were they able to get him because of Dusty? Yeah, he called Dusty <clears throat> during the offseason. And they re- the thing that's ironic about all the talk about Dusty ruining pitchers is that that Mark Pryor and um, who's the other one whose name is escaping me now um, for the Cubs, um, the guy he, he supposedly hurt, I can't think of his name. Uh, I can't they, think they, they remain very friendly with Dusty Baker. They don't blame him for what happened to him, to, to them. And Mark Pryor has been a friend with Dusty, and, and this over the off season, uh, he said, "Look, I'm, I'm I'm feeling good. What would you think if I came out and gave it one more shot with the Reds?" Dusty contacted uh, Walt Jockety, and uh, you know the rest is history. So uh, I'd love to see him come back. I think it would be a great story, and uh, he's a good kid. And uh, I hope he I hope he can turn it around. Well, you knew we couldn't get through a show without somebody, and that somebody is Engines Forty Two, bringing up my favorite guy, Ubaldo Jimenez, and he <laughs> wants to know if I have an update on Ubaldo this preseason. He's keeping his fingers crossed that Francona can turn this guy around. Well, here's what's happening with Ubaldo, folks, out in Arizona. Uh, so far, he's pitched in. Two games. He's thrown four innings. He's given up nine hits, five runs. All of them earned. He's walked two, struck out four, and he's giving up a batting average of 474. That's your number two starter for the Cleveland Indians this year, Mark. Well, he's your favorite pitcher. And, uh, you know, it's so oh. funny. When, when the Indians made that trade, 
I was hoping the Reds would get him. I really was. <laughs> because I thought, I mean, the guy was just lights out. Was it 2010? He was just unhittable. And then the second half of 2010 and all of 11 and all of 12, he got hammered. And I still thought when the Indians made the trade that somebody would be able to turn him around. But uh, I don't understand with his stuff, Dave. What do you see when he pitches that does he keep the ball up? Or, you know, what's his – is it is in his head? He's just bad location? Or what is it? He has – what they said was that he has absolutely – no consistency in his motion whatsoever. It's always something different. He's got so many moving parts. And the fact that he's got eight pitches that he will not break it down into throwing just three or four. He thinks he's got to throw all eight. And he won't listen to any catchers, won't listen to the pitching coach. I'm hoping Francona can get through to him uh, and really do something because um, – I think this is the last year of his contract, so he should be in a contract drive this year. Maybe next year it is, but I know they've got an option for a year after his last year. Um, I'm anxious to see if Francona can do something with this guy. And with the other pitchers that the Indians have uh, coming into this staff this year, I mean, they've got Trevor Bauer. Um, they've also got – you remember Scott Casimir? Sure. Scott Casimir is coming into camp. He's 28 years old, a left-handed pitcher, Mark. And Francona's really excited about this guy. All of a sudden, he had this mysterious arm injury that never needed surgery, but he couldn't throw the ball. And last year, he, he started throwing it again. The Indians signed him to a minor league deal, much like the Reds did with Mark Pryor. And, and Francona is absolutely giddy about Casimir's comeback this this year so far. And he's just excited about what this guy has done. Matter of fact, if you look at the the stats for Casimir so far, he's pitched four innings. He's given up only two hits, no runs. He's struck out four, and the opponents are hitting a combined 143 against him. So well, I'll tell you what, you put him and Bauer in that rotation because Bauer's pitching well right now. Also, uh, you may have a good situation there for the, the uh, Indians to be in as far as pitching is concerned. Well, that's why when I was looking over the year, over the winter, at the rosters for the teams and looking at the leagues and the, and the opportunities for both teams this year, uh, you know, it's you know people I think have a tendency to say, well, if you're uh, reporting on a particular team like we're reporting on the Reds and Indians respectively, that you you know say they're going to win every year. Uh, if people listen to us over the last three or four years, that's not the case. Uh, but there there should be reason with with Cleveland Indians fans. Uh, to be genuinely excited this year about that team, uh, that they've got a they've got a a lot of talent on that team. They've got the right manager. People know. I mean, people around the, the baseball world know that if that team performs, they're going to fill that stadium. They've done it before, and you know that that just feeds more revenue into the system and gets you an opportunity to get more players. So, as if I was an Indians fan, I would genuinely be excited about what I see in 2013. Uh, there, there were where the Reds were probably going into 2009 or 2010. Uh, there might be just a few years between the teams here in terms of development. But honestly, I think both teams can make the playoffs this year. And uh, it, the unknowns for the Indians is the youth that they have. Can those guys like Bauer come through? Their pitching staff is still a young staff. Uh, can, can they bounce back? Uh, there were some down years last year, 
and, and do what everybody thought they could do when they were signed. So they that they have. I mean, Imanez is a perfect example. I mean, this guy he has done it in the past. If he does it this year, you guys are going to have an outstanding rotation and, and have a chance to win the damn thing. Well, Mark, what we want to do right now is we want to take uh, just a couple of minutes and and step away from the Indians and the Reds and invite in our producer and also the founder of our website, UltimateSportsTalk.com, Greg Mitchell, and bring him in. And and Greg's got some uh, improvements that uh, he has made to the website, and we want to chat with him just a few minutes and and let him explain what's going on with the website. Greg, can you hear me okay? Yeah, I hear you great. Okay, great. Um, Greg, you've made some improvements to the website this year. Uh, I know you want to I- improve the uh, the quality and the the uh, shows that you've got coming on. Tell us a little bit about what you've done and, and what kind of news uh, shows and writers you've got bringing on. Oh, sure. Well, I think the the first thing that we did uh, since since you guys were on last year was we took a chance and uh, and found a, a different. Um, broadcasting program uh, that really enables us to broadcast from anywhere in the country and uh, linking up hosts from one side of the country to another uh, simply over the internet and it it takes a little bit of setup but it's it's pretty easy to do once you get it all set up and working right and through that we've been able to uh, do a couple of different things first we've been able to uh, build up relationships with current existing shows, whether that's on Blog Talk Radio or guys that had uh, podcasts on their individual websites. One of those uh, relationships was Rope to Rope Radio. It's a professional wrestling show uh, that's got a lot of notoriety with uh, the big companies like WWE and TNA, uh, but also has uh, just recently signed a deal with the UFC to start doing some advertising for them. Um, so we've uh, come into an agreement where we'll cross-promote each other, and that's uh, so far has turned out really, really well for both of us. Um, we've also entered into agreements with uh, the Shark Attack. Uh, it's another professional wrestling show with Sean Williams. Uh, that's on Tuesday nights uh, uh, every week on Blog Talk Radio. Uh, but then we have eight different radio shows that we're currently in production directly on the Ultimate Sports Talk Radio Network. Um, this is this is one of those shows that's in production, and we also have a few more that are just about ready to go live. Uh, we have two NBA shows, one miscellaneous uh, sports, uh, one special interest story, another professional wrestling, and uh, we're working on getting three MMA uh, mixed martial arts shows uh, building up that uh, really seem to be boosting up our traffic. So that is is probably the biggest change that we've made since last year, and it's uh, it's definitely shown to uh, to be very very positive as far as our ratings and uh, and getting more traffic to our website. Well, I know we with any great. new endeavor, uh, Greg, uh, there are some bugs. We did have a couple of bugs here tonight, uh, but we're going to work through those and get those straightened out for next week. Uh, and, and and I know you're working hard at that. Well, good yeah, job, absolutely. Greg. I mean, th- th- what a big difference uh, over last year and when we started a couple of years ago. So congratulations, and uh, and I know you're going to be continuing to improve the quality of everything we do. And uh, 
hopefully it's going to be a fun year uh, with the improvements you've made and, and also uh, the improvements that our teams have made. So hopefully it'll be a great <laughs> year for everybody. Yeah, I hope so. Well, I know one I, other thing, I, Greg. Yeah, go ahead. Go ahead, Greg. Oh, well, I, I just want to take a quick moment and, and just uh, mention our writing team because um, none of this would really be possible without – a strong writing team to keep the content on our website, and a couple of the big uh, the big names that I just like to throw out there: uh, David Foster, Don Fan, uh, Aaron Ramadinov, and Timothy Earl. And then uh, we also have a, a guest blogger who likes to focus on our fitness section, Sophia Rosie. Uh, those are a couple of the big names that have really worked hard over the last few months. To keep uh, to keep the content up, keep it fresh, keep it keep it going. Uh, so I just wanted to make sure that I get that out there. But uh, you know, altogether we have over 70 writers that are signed up with Ultimate Sports Talk. So that's that's phenomenal, considering we started this back in April 2011, and now look at where we're at. We've got 70 writers. We've got 10 different radio shows. Uh, Building up a, a lot of uh, relationships with companies, it's it's really starting to to boom, and I'm excited about where we're at right now, and definitely where we're headed. Great. Well, job, I know Greg. one other thing that you and I discussed also tonight, Greg, was the fact that uh, we're going to start doing some ball games. Matter of fact, uh, tomorrow night uh, I'll be doing play-by-play from the uh, Worcester District semifinal here in the state of Ohio for Ohio boys. Uh, state tournament basketball. Waynedale will be playing uh, Norway. That's Apple Creek, Ohio, against uh, Creston, Ohio. Uh, we tried out the signal tonight. Everything works out fine, so we'll be able to to bring that broadcast to you tomorrow night around seven o'clock. And and I'm really excited about that. Yeah, absolutely. We had a couple of bugs with our first test on the play-by-play, but uh, working a, a new system tonight, it it sure seems like uh, that's going to work out really well for us and and can only take our radio venture even further than, than just the talk shows. If we can get into play-by-play and really get a good base going there, I, I think uh, sky's the limit on the Ultimate Sports Talk Radio Network. Great job, Greg. Thank well, you, we Mark. appreciate your really time, appreciate Greg. It, and, uh, yeah, really appreciate all your hard work, and uh, we'll be talking to you again next week. Okay. Thank you so much, guys. Great job tonight. Thanks, Greg. Greg Mitchell, a producer and also the founder of UltimateSportsTalk.com, the website that we're on. Uh, Mark, just a couple of things before we sign off for the evening. Uh, first of all, your movie, uh, Last to Bat. Uh, let's get an update on that and what's happening. Well, quite a few things are happening, actually. We have named a director, uh, Alfredo de Villa, who has produced uh, or directed uh, a number of uh, award-winning films at, at Sundance and also at Tribeca and uh, he's done a, a number of feature films, has been named, and we are in negotiations with a ju- young gentleman uh, for the lead role named Scott Eastwood. And if you're wondering if he's related to uh, Clint Eastwood, the answer is yes, it's his son. Uh, he's been in a number of films. He's a, he's a young kid, who, uh, a young kid to me, uh, who is uh, not new to the acting business. He's actually been doing it for a number of years, but uh, he sees this as a, as a major role with a feature film. And we're we're going to be announcing uh, probably in the next two weeks uh, an Academy Award-winning actor who is signed on. I can't release his name yet uh, to play a major role in the film. So we're excited. We've got got our financing 
in place. Uh, we are in negotiations with uh, both the Reds and the Dayton Dragons uh, for their facilities, and uh, we uh, the, the anticipation is we'll begin filming in July. It's going to be about a 36-day shoot, um, and we hope to have everything wrapped up, uh, uh, even with uh, post-production by probably October. Uh, our hope is that we're going to be uh, going to Sundance next January with with our film. Uh, we've been accepted already, at least based on the script. So, um, so far, so good. Um, <laughs> I'm relatively new to this business, but uh, we have a website now that I encourage those who have interest in what we're doing to see our, our trailer uh, of all of our films. We have uh, 10 films. We have uh, 10 scripts done, 10 trailers, and uh, we are going to be doing all those films over the next five or six years. And um, we're going to be announcing everything formally. I guess uh, I can probably announce the, the, the sites next week. I, I think they're still doing some loose ends here, but uh, uh, it's moving along very well. And um, uh, we're excited about it, and so far, so good. Are you searching for any property out in Hollywood yet? Well, unfortunately, uh, I may have to do exactly that. I, I, I'm not looking forward to that. But on the other hand, uh, it, it's an exciting you know, second career for me to be in the filmmaking business. And uh, so we'll see what happens. It's, uh, it's, uh, people say this has happened very quickly. Uh, to me, it's happened very slowly. <laughs> but uh, it, it's, been, it's been exciting, and I, and I really can't complain about it. Mark, for those people that don't know, and correct me if I'm wrong, but they don't know who Scott Eastwood is other than being Clint's son, but he was also in the movie Trouble with the Curve as the minor league ball player that was having trouble hitting the baseball, and Clint, as the scout, uh, decided to bring his family to him, thinking that it would help him hit. Yeah, and uh, he, you know, he had a very small role in that film and he's had a couple small roles. He was in a Texas Chainsaw Massacre that came out this year too. And he had a small role in this, but you know, young kids like that, uh, they look for opportunities to, uh, break out in a role. And, uh, this is, we're very happy that, uh, that Scott sees the value in our, on our project and uh, the potential of our project. And, uh, that's why we're, we're awfully Glad to have him on board, and and we have a top flight director too, and uh, that's that's put us in good stead. And uh, anyway, um, actually, I, I'm going to go ahead and give people the the website. It's www.drw2mediagroup.com. That's www.drw2 mediagroup.com and you can see the trailer for Last at Bat there plus all, all of our other projects and uh, it, it, it appears that uh, we are working a deal with the state of Ohio that would uh, ensure that uh, all ten of those films would be made at least partially in the state of Ohio so uh, we're excited about that uh, enterprise as well so if you have any interest visit our site and take a look well, as I always tell you, Mark, if you have any call for a short, fat, ugly bat boy or ticket taker, I'm available. <laughs> well, you, you never know, Dave. This could be a whole new uh, career for you. 
if we put out that kind of casting call, I'll make sure I contact you. Thank you very much. But, you know, uh, I, I hope I'm not speaking out of turn, but when you do start uh, filming down in Dayton and Cincinnati, I know we're planning on going down there and doing a show down there. So uh, I, I hope I'm not speaking out of turn by saying that, but I know we've talked about it. No, not at all. In fact, uh, we're going to be doing uh, a number of events down here, including a script reading, uh, which we'll probably televise and put on on the internet. And uh, it's an exciting uh, time because we're, you know, we're going to be putting out casting calls for people for these roles. Uh, in addition to our our top name stars, big name stars, uh, the whole idea here is we want to engage the community to be part of our films. And uh, it's. You know, we're going to be looking for baseball players, as an example, uh, uh, who can play ball and look like major leaguers. And uh, the, the both the Dragons and the Reds have been very cooperative so far in uh, uh, saying they want to be part of this. So, uh, so far, so good. I mean, we've uh, we've raised our our financing, and uh, that's always the biggest challenge in in making a movie. But uh, hopefully, uh, next year at this time, we'll have it in the can and. Uh, we can be talking about uh, our next film. In two years, we can talk about the Academy Awards. Uh, your lips to God's ears. <laughs> Mark, one last thing before we sign off for tonight. And, of course, uh, keep in mind, this was just a special two-hour edition. We're going to go back to one hour uh, next week from 9 to 10 for the rest of the season. Um, over the winter, we lost uh, – the, the game of baseball lost two people that were very – very near and dear to the hearts of, of baseball fans, Stan Musial and Earl Weaver. And I want to start out with Stan Musial. Uh, your thoughts on him as a baseball player and, a, and as a person. I'm, you know, it's funny. I'm partial to Stan Musial. I, he, he was just a, a great player. Obviously, that, that goes without saying. But when I was, uh, let me see, it was 1963. I think it was the last year he played. I met him. Uh, I, I went to a baseball camp uh, out in Missouri, and uh, Miller, Missouri, a Mickey Owens baseball camp. And <clears throat> for some reason, he was at the camp. I don't know why he was there, uh, because it was during the season. It was in the summertime. And I don't know, maybe an off day, and maybe he knew Mickey Owens. I don't know. But uh, he sat on the bench, and, uh, I mean, I was afraid to go talk to him. But, you know, he was he was so nice and, and so cordial and uh, and the thing I remember most about him is how huge his hands were. I mean, you know, you're a little kid. I mean, I was, what, 14, 15 years old. But this guy was, he, he didn't appear that big on TV, but he was a big guy, big, strong guy. And he was so nice, and he was always, because of that, one of my favorite players. I never had the uh, the good fortune of meeting Earl Weaver, but uh, all I remember was I, I hated him because he, his Orioles beat my 1970 Reds. But obviously, what a great manager he was. Well, the one, there are two things that stand out in my mind about Stan Musial. Of course, uh, I, I wasn't able to ever see him play. But the two things that stood out when I was looking over his career was, one, uh, and I don't remember the exact batting averages, but when he came back from World War II, after being out of the game for a year, he hit over 340 that year he came back. Unbelievable. And also, the next to last year before he retired, which if he retired in the 63, I think it was 62, 
he had his second highest batting average of his career. He hit over 360 that year, Mark. Unbelievable for a guy his age and and in that kind of a career uh, that Musial had. But I think the most outstanding stat that Musial had was the fact that he was married to the same woman for 72 years. Is that right? That I did not know. Wow. All I know is he had a one of the the he had so many flaws in his swing. <laughs> I mean, all hitting coaches say don't mimic Stan Musial. All he did was just smoke the ball. I mean, he, he hit the ball hard, probably more than anybody else. And uh, uh, it's just amazing these older players like Stan Musial and and I, I think about Joe DiMaggio and the the statistic that just knocked me off my my seat is in 19, I think it was in 1940, 1940 or 1939, uh, Joe DiMaggio in one year, he struck out 13 times in one year. That's all, 13 times. And in two years, he struck out 27 times. And in two years, Drew Stubbs struck out 434 times. <laughs> now, that's the kind of hitters they were back then. Talking about Stan Musial and 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 Willie Mays and Hank Aaron and uh, you know Joe DiMaggio. I mean, it's just, just on and on and on. It's such a different game now. So yeah. Uh, yeah. we were spoiled back in the day. We definitely were. Um, Mark, next Friday or next Monday night, I should say, not Friday night. Next Monday night, we'll be back on the air from nine to ten, back in our usual one-hour slot. Glad to have you along again this year, and we look forward to next next Monday night. All right, Dave. Thank you. We'll have the bugs worked out by then, believe me. <laughs> Take care. <laughs> also, don't forget that coming up tomorrow night at 7 o'clock, we'll be broadcasting the Waynedale norwayne game right here on the uh, Ultimate Sports Talk Radio Network. I'll be bringing you the play-by-play from that game from Worcester High School. And also, don't forget on Thursday night, I'll also be doing the BBA Baseball Talk Show on Blog Talk Radio from 9 to 10 o'clock. So, Please join us then and continue to listen to the stream along on our on Ultimate Sports Talk uh, site where you can uh, re-listen to this broadcast coming up in just about a half an hour. Our thanks to Adam Green from ArizonaSports.com for being our guest tonight talking about Trevor Bauer. To Greg Mitchell and for Mark Donahue, I'm Dave Mitchell. Good night, everybody.